let's take our Bibles tonight. Turn to Mark chapter 9, which we read together earlier. Uh, on our way through Mark's gospel, we've been interrupted at various times, and uh, we're re-picking it up again. <clears throat> In this particular section, I think it's helpful for anyone who might be here and this evening and has doubts about the integrity of the Bible. If anyone is in any doubt about the transparency and integrity of the first Christians, especially the first Christian leaders, they should pay attention to this section of Mark. Our Lord's purpose is made very clear in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know because he was teaching his disciples. Now, the route that he's taking, I'm not going to spend much time in the, ge- the ge- geography of this, but the route they're taking from where we find them at the foot of the mount where Jesus was transfigured will ultimately lead them to Capernaum, where they'll stay for a little while. And it's from Capernaum that Jesus will begin the last journey. From Capernaum through Galilee into Judea to Jerusalem to the cross the grave, and the skies. That will be the journey of Jesus. So at this point, knowing that that's ahead of him, telling them that that was ahead of them, even though they didn't believe him, Jesus now seeks privacy, or as we say in English, privacy, uh, from the crowds that he might... You're not a humorous crowd tonight, so that's okay. Uh, Privacy, so the crowds are not there, And he might give his attention to his disciples. And we discover that his disciples, that is the ones closest to him, needed his attention for a number of reasons. And uh, he particularly wants to talk to them about his death and resurrection and prepare them for that and for their future ministry as his apostles. Now, what is it he's concerned to teach them and us. Well, he wants to teach us, first of all, about the centrality of the cross, the centrality of the cross. What we have in these verses that we've read is the second of three predictions of his passion. The first one we saw back in chapter 8 followed immediately on Simon Peter's confession of who Jesus is. You remember, uh, before they went up the mountain for the transfiguration, Jesus in Caesarea Philippi asked them, who do people say that I am? And they came up with the kinds of things people were theorizing about who Jesus was. And then he puts the ball into their court. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, taking the lead, says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, in in Matthew's account, immediately tells the the people, the, the disciples who are there, that Peter did not come up with this himself. This was not Peter's theological brain, which he hadn't got one at that stage. But this is not his theological brain working out this, going through this, the routine, looking at the Scriptures and so on, and coming up with this conclusion. No, Jesus said to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What he's saying is that this declaration 
of Peter, which was a declaration fundamentally of Jesus' divinity, you are the Son of the living God, as well as his uh, role and function, he is the Messiah. Uh, This clear declaration of his divinity was certainly regarded as such by the religious leaders. You find the very same words used by the high priest later on when Jesus has been arrested and he's been brought before the high priest. And after they've been asking him various questions, the high priest can't stand it any longer, so he challenges him. And he says, I adjure you. This is a, a form of language that you find in the courtroom of the time. I adjure you by the living God Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, you'll see the language that is in Peter's confession is reproduced by the high priest. The language, the word Christ is there. The word the Son of God is there. The language of the living God is there. And you might ask yourself, how did the high priest know this language? This is Christian language. This is the language of St. Peter? And the answer to that question is likely Judas Iscariot did more than simply tell the authorities where to find Jesus the night he was betrayed. Judas Iscariot must have given the authorities some of the uh, material upon which they were going to make their charges against Jesus. That's an assumption we make, but the absolute clarity with which Jesus is questioned on that confession of faith uh, is stated there. And the next thing that Jesus says to the high priest at, uh, in, the, in the court before his, his judgment and then his death is this. He confirms what the high priest has just said. In other words, he confirms Peter's confession in the mouth of the high priest now as being the truth. Yes, I am the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And he goes on to say this, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, that is another word for God in in, Hebrew, among the Jews. The Jews avoided using the name God or Lord because those were too holy, and so they would insert something else like the word power in its place. Seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. The clouds of heaven are representative of God right throughout the Old Testament. And immediately he said that. The high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. In other words, on Jesus' confession of his claim to deity lies his condemnation and his crucifixion. Now, it's against this background then that when we come to our verse this evening, his claim to deity, Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the scribes and the chief priests and be killed and after three days rise again. By the way, that's from Mark chapter 8. That's after Peter has made the confession. And when we come to Mark chapter 9, 31, we discover 
that that's what Jesus has been saying. The, the tense of the verb used is in the imperfect, which means he had been teaching them all of this time, right from the time that he was confessed by Peter back in chapter 8, that period. And now during the walk that he'd had with the disciples, he had been teaching them about his passion, telling them about this. It had been a constant theme of his teaching from chapter 831, and now he's resuming it. He's resuming it in a more formal way. He was teaching his disciples and saying to them, and here in Mark 9.31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise again. Now, in this lesson that Jesus teaches the disciple, he makes two claims for himself. He claims, first of all, to be the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Now, this was an astonishing claim and title for Jesus to use about himself. Its use goes back to Jesus himself, and he uses it of himself. No one else dreamt this one up. This is the normal way Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels, the Son of Man, which brings together the Son of God language and the human language of the Messiah. In Mark 8.31, he substitutes Son of Man for the title Messiah or Christ. Uh, when that word Christ or Messiah is rightly understood, John Calvin says, it embraces all that is contained of our salvation. But in Jesus' day, the title Christ or Messiah meant different things to different people. So Jesus replaces its use and calls himself the Son of Man. Now that title or that designation comes directly from the book of Daniel in chapter 7. If the title Messiah identifies Jesus as the Davidic king the Jews were expecting, the title Son of Man points to a, a higher dignity still. Let me read to you from Daniel 7. Daniel says, I saw and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days, and to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, the Son of Man figure exists eternally, but will come to be the final judge of humanity, and he is invested with a divine majesty, and he's seen to be, in Daniel, a transcendent figure, a divine one, who receives from God the whole creation for his possession. Jesus, by calling himself the Son of Man, is calling on all of this language with which to see him. It's a divine claim. And the mystery of the divine claim is that he's the son 
who emanates from God, but he's also human. So that's his first claim, the Son of Man. But the second thing that he's claiming in this, in this passage is that he is the suffering servant of the Lord. That language comes from Isaiah, the prophet, the great prophet, 800 years before Jesus was born. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 6, Isaiah goes into the temple, or at least he goes to try and get into the temple and finds he can't get into the temple because he sees the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, and the fullness of God fills the temple and is shaking the temple. And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, high and lifted up. That's in chapter 6. Later on in Isaiah, in chapters 15, around that, uh, he begins to discuss the question of Israel's failure and exile and then its future salvation. And as he talks about the future salvation of Israel, he also talks about the future salvation of the world, that is, Gentiles as well as Jews. And as he talks about that, he introduces us to a figure, mysterious figure, called the servant of the Lord. And as he describes him, as Isaiah describes this figure, he's a representative figure. He acts in obedience towards God and in salvation towards God's people. In fact, there are some points when you're reading Isaiah, you think, who am I listening to here? Is this God speaking? And then you find out it's the servant speaking. But when the servant speaks, he sounds like God. He uses language. He talks as God to people. So we find the servant speaking for God and as God. It's the servant who says, I, I am he who comforts you using the same form, formula that Jesus will use when he says, I, I am the way, I am the good shepherd, I, I am the door, and so on, that, that language. And we read that it is this servant who is being talked about when it says of him in Isaiah 52, he shall be high and lifted up. Is the God of Israel high and lifted up? The servant will be high and lifted up. What is true of the God of Israel is true of the servant. And yet no sooner is he identified with the God of Israel as his true identity than Isaiah goes on to describe him in very human terms and especially to describe him in his suffering and in his death, Isaiah 53. Now, this is the language then that Jesus is pointing to here in chapter 8, verse 31. The heavenly human Son of Man will be rejected. He'll be rejected. Language that comes from Psalm 118, where the chief cornerstone of the temple, everything in which the temple is built and towards which the temple is ordered, this one will be rejected by his own people. Jesus will quote this later on in Mark chapter 12, that he is the cornerstone that has been rejected by men. Now, when earlier on in chapter 8, 
Jesus is coming down the mountain of transfiguration. He said to the disciples, the Son of Man would suffer many things and be set at naught. Those words come directly from Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He's the suffering servant of the Lord, the one who is has the identity of the Lord God of Israel who created everything, is also the suffering servant of the Lord, who comes down among us, who are his servants, takes on servanthood himself in order that by his suffering and his servanthood, he might win for us salvation. Only through his death, could he be raised again from the dead and in turn rescue you and I from death? So the Son of God, who is the Son of Man, is the suffering servant who will be rejected. He will be delivered over into the hands of men and they will kill him. There's a first century document called The Similitudes of Enoch. And in that document, which Jews venerate, although they don't venerate it as Scripture, it's venerated as something that flows out of Scripture. The similitudes of Enoch show aspects of suffering related to the Son of Man language. Pictures that bring together both his transcendent majesty and his vicarious suffering, that is, suffering in other people's behalf. It's that that becomes suitable for us to express the gospel, the way Isaiah expresses it. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was wounded for our transgressions. The teaching of Jesus centers on his death then and now. You really need to understand the centrality of the cross of Jesus. If you're interested in Christianity and you, you're just new to that, that's where you must begin. That God would have taken on our human flesh in order that he might die for our sins and then be raised again so that we might be reconciled to him. That is the heart of the good news. You're not expected to do that. That's been done for you. He has obeyed. He has been the perfect servant that we are not. And he credits to you his per perfect obedience. And he has paid the price, the penalty. He's done that in himself. Well, that's the message Jesus communicates to his disciples. And uh, while it fills our hearts with joy because we've been able to see how it all plays out, the disciples are uncomprehending. It says, they did not understand. Now, if you were making this up, if you were merely putting together a story, you would want to make yourself look good, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want it to be written that the high headwinds of the church, including Peter and James and John, didn't understand the central message of the gospel. They didn't understand 
the cross. So the centrality of the cross. But then Jesus' teaching goes on. Like a good teacher, he's interactive. This is, uh, Jesus is not preaching a sermon which is monodirectional, which is very obviously monodirectional, as you nod off. Jesus in his teaching is much more what we do or should be doing in our small groups or in Bible school, interactive. And that's what he's doing when he turns to them and he says, uh, what were you discussing on the way? I heard you having this big discussion. Now, Jesus knows perfectly well, by the way, what they were discussing, but he wants them. He wants to see if they'll tell him what they were dis- discussing. He knows what they're thinking because Jesus is the, is the knower of all things. He knows what we're thinking all the time, at this moment and in every moment. And their response is not very promising. It says, they kept silent. And then it tells us why they kept silent. And you understand why they were silent. Because on the way, they were arguing with one another about which of them was the greatest. Which of them was the greatest. Now, it's at that point then that Jesus, now they're in a private home by this point, Jesus sat down. Now, he always sat down to teach in this interactive manner. And he called the twelve. He called the twelve. So they knew what was going on here. They were being summoned to his teaching And he focused their minds. And he said to them, in case they thought he didn't know, he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. This is Jesus' definitive word to every elder, deacon, minister, everybody who might think they're a big shot in the church of God. This is Jesus' word for every Christian. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is countercultural, this is counterintuitive, and it's counternatural. It's against everything in our nature. In the kingdom of God, precedence is given to those whose those lives that are marked by lowliness and humble service. This is where the word diakonos is used. The word for service here refers to a domestic servant. The person who cleans the floors and the toilets and cleans the rooms and does all the grunt work. That's where the servant is. That's what we call our ministers. Ministers are diakonos or diakonoi. That's their job. They have a job to do. Their job is to provide for the needs of others. In the case of a minister, the the need of others to hear the Word of God. In the 
in the case of the, de- the, the deacons and deaconesses, the service that the church requires in terms of one another to one another, the meeting of one another's needs within the life of the church. And it's the word Jesus uses of himself. He is the servant. He is the servant. He is the servant of the Lord. And in this one word, he sets the standard for your life and mine. And to illustrate it, Jesus takes up a little child. And he embraces the child. And he puts them in the, the child in the midst of the group. And he says this to them. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, when he does that, don't think for a moment that he's thinking about the child in its childishness or the child with its childlike traits that are very nice in children but not so nice in adults. No, he's talking about the social status of a child. Especially in the ancient world, a child represented the lowest order on the social scale. The child was under the authority and care of others. The child had no rights of self-determination or self-expression. What a world away from today that it may be, but that's the way it was back in those days. So to become like a child, as Jesus tells them, to become like a little child. Jesus says that in Mark 18, 3. As a way of becoming a Christian, you have to become like a little child, he says. To become like a little child is to reject status and to take the lowest place, to become a little one. In Matthew, we're to become like little children or we'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this means that recognizing and acknowledging our smallness and our unimportance before God and doing so gladly before others. Well, here Mark turns it round. We should be prepared to meet, mix with, welcome, befriend, and treat as significant those whom the world regards as nothing and no one. And when we welcome the lowly and the despised, we do as Jesus would do. To welcome the lowly is to welcome Jesus. To welcome Jesus is equal to welcoming God the Father who sent him. To be sent on this mission implies Jesus' eternal preexistence with the Father from whom he came. Jesus ties all of that theology into this appeal to us. To remember to be humble. Well, having told them to receive those who we would naturally reject... We come to the story in verses 38 to 41. Teacher, we saw someone 
casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Where the name of Jesus is concerned, in other words, natural human considerations of who is in and who is out are subverted. It encourages among us a welcoming openness rather than a protective exclusiveness within the Christian tradition. Whoever loves the Lord Jesus is to be treated as someone who loves the Lord Jesus, whether we agree in absolutely every point of theology or not. That's basic. You know, there's a a resemblance to this little incident in uh, the Old Testament in Numbers. Uh, And in the book of Numbers, two men named Eldad and Medad were told had the Spirit resting on them. But they were not among the registered. Those registered, those who had been ordained and whose names had been registered, these guys have the Holy Spirit. These two men had the Holy Spirit uh, without authorization. And they were going around the camp, and they were prophesying. And Joshua, Joshua's a goody, good guy. Joshua, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord Moses, stop them. You can't, let, you can't let these unauthorized guys go around saying that they're prophesying and they're doing this and they're doing that. Can't let that happen. And Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? I mean, do you think that's threatening me as the leader of Israel? I would that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. And that was the end of that conversation. You see how similar that is here. Here's a man casting out demons in Jesus' name. He's not one of the disciples. They haven't seen him at any of their gatherings allowed the Lord when he was sitting down teaching them. But there he is. He's doing it in Jesus' name, and it's working. Spirit's using this man. He's not one of them. And yet Jesus authorizes what he has done. Jesus repudiates John's view that because this man is unauthorized, that he can't do what he's doing. And the words that Jesus encapsulates all of this in are those, he who is not against us is for us. Therefore, receive those who profess Jesus' name and who act as Jesus would. So don't be, don't be cliquish, I suppose, is the, is the lesson that we learn there in verse 38. And then the last 
little section there has to be avoiding temptations to sin. And it's aimed at us. We're not to become a temptation for someone else to sin. Whoever causes one of these little ones, using little ones in the sense he's used it, somebody who's innocent, somebody who's, who is uh, low in status, but they believe in Jesus, anyone who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, that is to fall away from the faith, to fall away from Christian profession, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea. Well, that word means to pervert and mislead, to cause intellectually or morally, causing others to lose their faith and fall away from God. You think of those uh, people who abuse their place in churches, I think of a person who was a friend of mine who ended up committing suicide, and an elder would come to their house and teach her every Friday afternoon. The parents thought the elder was a great guy. Even when eventually she told them the story, they still thought he was a great guy. Didn't believe her, believed him. It's remarkable that having been raped from the age of 12 to the age of 17 when she went off to university to get away from it all, that she did not lose her faith. But if she had, that, that's the kind of scenario Jesus is addressing here. Better for that man to have a millstone tied round his neck and to be cast into the depths of the sea. You hurt the little ones. You hurt Jesus. To harm even the most simple believer is to harm ourselves ultimately and generally to cause others to stumble is to cause ourselves to stumble in a far worse way. You see, as uh, someone has put it, salvation is part of a social process And in that process of people coming to faith or people observing the way we live as a church as well as individuals, there can be no thoughtlessness about the effect on others. Our life and our death is with our neighbor. If we gain our brother, we've gained God If we scandalize our brother or our sister, we've sinned against God. That's how serious it is. So we must be careful the way we treat one another within within the body of Christ, lest we be the occasion of stumbling for someone, inadvertently leading them into sin or leading them away from the faith, leading them to question their faith leading them to reject their Savior and their God. We need to be watchful, brothers and sisters. We need to be watchful about these things. We need to be careful because temptation can come with and through us. And therefore, that's why Jesus says you must pay attention to your feet, to to your sight, 
You must be watchful against sin and against causing others to sin. Cut off the the source of temptation at the source, Jesus says. Well, so they must learn. And so as we read this this evening, we must learn. Our Lord in His great mercy works along with these unbelieving, slow-witted, swollen-headed, narrow-minded, careless men in order that they might be useful. May the Lord do the same with us tonight. And ultimately, the passage ends with what it means to be a disciple. Being a disciple means being the salt in the world. By the witness that we give, by the kind of life that we live, we deliver people from the corruption of sin. Salt was used then to stop meat corrupting. It was a preservative. We are a preservative to keep men and women, boys and girls, from being corrupted by sin. Let's pray together. Lord, as your disciples wanting to follow you today, Thank you for this word. We pray that you would keep us watchful. Keep us centered and focused on the cross, which is the way of salvation. Lord, may we humbly follow you and not think about ourselves. May we have an eye to the lowly, to the meek, to those, Lord, who can't uh, project themselves or promote themselves. Lord, we pray that we would take care of them encourage them, protect them. We pray, Lord, that you would cleanse our hearts and our minds and make us your useful servants, we ask. In Jesus' strong name, amen.